Well, if you've been here the last few weeks, we've been talking about Joseph. And uh, you know that we've looked at his life and we've seen the various trials that he's been through, some of them severe. He's gone from the favored son of his father to uh, being sold into slavery by his jealous brothers and pretended for dead now for quite some time. Um, he's taken from that situation. He ends up serving in the house of an Egyptian named Potiphar where he becomes the trusted servant because he's a good guy and he's reliable and he's honest. And it says, the scripture says that everything his hand, he set his hand to, uh, the Lord blessed and that Potiphar's household was, because, was blessed because of who Joseph was and how he lived. Uh, Potiphar's wife, not such a good person. She accuses him of impropriety and uh, he ends up imprisoned, disgraced as a would-be adulterer. And then he emerges rather unexpectedly in Genesis chapter 41 um, as a trusted advisor all of a sudden and a dream interpreter for Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet at the time. He then rises quickly, some people would say meteorically, from advisor to prime minister of Egypt, not prime minister in the sense that we would think, but nonetheless the number two man, second only to Pharaoh, and responsible for not only the security, but also the provision of Egypt. The truth is, though, that most of the early scriptural anecdotes about Joseph's life are about moments of trial and pain and defeat than they are about experiences of joy. But it's worth noting, and Brent reminded us of this last week, that in every stage of Joseph's life, regardless of what he was facing, regardless of whether the situation appeared good or bad, Joseph remained faithful to God, and he lived in service and submission to God all of his days. He never wavered from that. And so this week, we'll be in Genesis 42, and while we're still talking about Joseph in the overarching sense, we're going to look a little closer at his father, Jacob. Now, I know family trees are confusing. When you start reading through the lineage of the Bible, it can get really confusing as to who's related to who. So maybe the slide on the screen will help you. You see in the bottom left-hand corner there, Abraham is the patriarch of the Jewish people. He's the husband of Sarah, and Isaac is their son. Isaac has two boys, twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau is actually slightly older than Jacob, and you may remember from reading the story or seeing the movie that he cheats his brother Esau out of the, the double portion of the inheritance that he was entitled to as the firstborn of their father. Joseph we know. Joseph is Jacob's youngest son. Benjamin is younger. It looks confusing there because Dan and Naphtali actually appear to be older. They're arranged based on who their mother is, not based on how old they are. And so Joseph and Benjamin are the great-grandchildren of Abraham, the great-grandsons of Abraham. At this point in the story where we pick up today, Jacob is about 130 years old. And the drought that Joseph had warned Pharaoh about when he interpreted his dream, uh, it's now upon the land of Egypt. It's quite severe. And uh, as, as Joseph has told Pharaoh, it's going to last for seven years. But, and this is important, the drought has also spread to nearby Canaan, which is where Jacob lives with his sons. And it has also spread really throughout the entire Mediterranean region. It's no longer just an Egyptian event. It's now very much um, a regional event for all intents and purposes at that time, a worldwide event. And so it's in the midst of this desperation where in Genesis 42, we pick up, listen to Jacob as he gives instructions to his son. Verse one, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? Like, why are you still sitting here? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain there for us that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin. Remember, Benjamin is the youngest brother and the only blood brother of Joseph. 
He did not send Benjamin with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Did you catch that? He feared. See, he's reacting emotionally here. He's concerned for Benjamin, and his fear actually erodes his trust in God. As if somehow God isn't able to to care for Benjamin. No problem sending the other ten, but Benjamin's not going anywhere. Now, I got to say, I get his emotional state here. I do. I totally understand what he must be feeling. He already believes that he's lost his favorite son, Joseph. He's lived that pain for some years. He's really never gotten over it, not since the moment when the, the, the coat that he wore that he made for Joseph was brought back to him all bloody and torn. And the son said, does this belong to your son, Joseph? And they knew it did because they were deceiving him. And he's never really gotten over that. So who could blame him here for trying to protect Benjamin? Uh, it's almost like he's trying to protect against what we might call Murphy's Law. We, we all have some understanding of what Murphy's Law is. It's the, if, uh, if anything can go wrong, it will. Like you, you wash your classic car and you detail it, anticipating a nice Saturday drive up the coast along the Sea to Sky Highway, and you wake up Saturday morning and it's pouring rain. Or you had a little bit more money this month, than, uh, than normal, and so you apply the extra to the mortgage, and then next week you get a car repair bill that you could have paid cash for if you kept the money and saved it, but now you've applied it to the mortgage, and you have to use your credit card. We all, you know, it's the peanut butter face down on the floor. We've all seen Murphy's Law in action. I actually had a peanut butter sandwich land face up. Thank you very much. I defied the odds. Um, I don't know how that happened, but it did. Uh, anyway, so regardless of how you feel about Murphy's Law here, you probably can empathize with Jacob on some level because in order to truly trust God, this is what he has to do. He has to lay his burden for Benjamin and Benjamin's safety. He has to lay it down, drop it, and he has to trust God. And then he has to not pick his burden for Benjamin back up because once he sends him out the door to Egypt, it's too late. He's, he's turned it over to God. So he has to lay it down and not pick it back up. He has to say effectively, God, I can't make it rain. I can't end the famine. I can't protect my kids. And I can't save all of us from starvation. But you can. And I trust you for the process and for whatever the outcome, even though I don't know what it is. But that's not Jacob's state of mind here. That's not where he is at all. He's scared. And so um, he reacts because his faith out of his fear has been eroded. He's forgotten who he serves. But trusting God's not as simple as you and me looking at him and tisking him 2,000 and some years later and saying, well, more, well, more than 2,000. It's, it's not as simple as saying, remain calm, right? Perhaps you know our boys, our sons. Um, they're 13 months apart. Some people call them Irish twins. Uh, most people think they're twins until they get to know us and then they realize they're not. But They've never known life without each other. And when Brett was born, even though both of the boys had interesting stories, this one's about Brett. um, On the day that he was to be born, Kim and I were traveling to the hospital for a predetermined appointment because about a week before, two weeks before he was to be born, they did an ultrasound and they told us that he was big, uh, bigger than we were anticipating, a lot bigger. And so... uh, a C-section was a possibility, but we, we wanted to, uh, they wanted to induce labor on Kim's due date because they didn't want him to cook any longer because he was just going to get bigger. And so we drive to the hospital. We're excited. 
I said it. Um, <laughs> we, we drive to the hospital, we're excited, and there's a little bit of fear and apprehension with me. Um, I don't know about if there was with Kim, she trusts God far easier than I do. But we drive to the hospital, and, and, and the only thing is we know that this is going to be an induced labor. And so it labor's induced, and things are going fine, and that's easy for me to say because I'm not feeling anything except emotional. Um, but we wait and we wait and we wait. And for Kim, it becomes a whole lot less comfortable than waiting. But since I can't even begin to understand that, I'm not even going to try. Um, and, and in the midst of it, um, it becomes apparent 30 hours in that this is not going where we want it to go. And uh, what happens is Brett's heart rate actually starts to drop significantly. Uh, they've got him on a fetal heart monitor, and I can see it on the screen, and it starts to drop. And then it starts to stay low for a, a longer period of time. And there's this thing called severe fetal hypoxia, which is not good. Uh, it doesn't sound good, and it's not. And because that this is now a possibility with his heart rate lower, uh, essentially he's not getting probably enough uh, oxygen circulating, they decide we're going to the OR. And it goes from like calm, difficult, and painful for her, and long and drawn out, but calm, to foom. Her and Brett in utero, are be, in utero are being whisked one way, and I'm being tugged by the anesthesiologist and the nurse in another way. And they start, they start shoving forms at me, the, the, the anesthesiologist, and he's speaking in what might as well have been the Greek language. And in hindsight, even though the system worked perfectly, I wasn't thinking how good they were doing. I wasn't thinking how smooth their process was, and I wasn't formulating a guest satisfaction follow-up card because this guy's shoving forms at me, saying, sign here, read this, sign here, blah, blah, blah. And I don't remember a whole lot of what he said. But I do remember what snapped me back to reality was something along the lines of unanticipated side effects, including stroke paralysis, cardiac arrest, and even death. Okay, good, sign here. And I'm like, wait, what? What? Time out. What? But before I can really say anything, then the nurse comes in. I mean, so it sounds like a cartoon, right? It wasn't. Um, the nurse comes in and she's like shoving the cap and the gown at me and the face shield. And I'm going, what's that for? And, you know, stand here, scrub with this, wait right there, remain calm. <laughs> Those of you who know me are laughing. And we will come and get you if and when we can. Well, remain calm never even occurred to me. Not even. Um, I wasn't calm. I was freaking out. And some of it might even have leaked out a little. Like, you might have seen it. Might have. Would the people who know me please stop laughing? <laughs> but, you know, I had to get over myself. I had, because Kim needed me, and truthfully, I wanted to be there to support her. And both of us wanted to hold that little boy. Because we've been praying for him for years. And today's the day. And so I walk through that door when I'm invited and I'm looking from the ante room off of the OR, I could see the table and I could see the screen they had erected and I could see the anesthesiologist and I've been in enough ER settings to know where I'm going to sit. It's the empty stool beside the anesthesiologist behind the screen so that I can't see what I'm not supposed to see, if you know what I mean. Because you're not supposed to see your wife's insides <laughs> and you never really get over that. But anyway... The screen is too low, I'm too tall, it was an interesting morning. Um, I sit, Brett arrives, and everything plays out fine. I mean, you saw him running around here this morning, he might even have annoyed a, a couple of you. Thankfully, it turned out good. But in the moments, remaining calm and trusting God and the medical team, that never even crossed my mind. And who, honestly, other than, like, you know, really, really deeply spiritual people, who would wag their finger at me and say, well, if, what was wrong with you? Why didn't you remain calm? We all get that fear to some degree, right? The loss of control. And even, you know, you look at the medical staff and they look like they were one yard short of frantic. Like they look like the Seattle Seahawks last year in the Super Bowl. And it's like, 
What do we do? Where do we go? Um, <laughs> sorry, Seattle people. And, and this is the other thing that I was really struggling with. I was a paramedic and a firefighter back then, and the, my job was based on the fact that things are not fine all the time. In fact, sometimes the reason I'm at your house ringing your doorbell at three in the morning is because it's anything but fine. And so me looking at you going, hey, calm down, we got this, not going to probably resonate a whole lot with you. And so it's in these moments where this, this fear starts to run out of control with us and adrenaline is going into overdrive. And it's, it, it's then that we most need the Lord's peace because we, we, got, we got nothing here except fear and anxiety. And here's the thing, and we know this philosophically, he's still in control. Regardless of how it plays out, he's still in control. And so the question is this, in spite of our fear, can we move toward trusting God? There's a saying that there are no atheists in foxholes. I've never been in a foxhole. I've never been shelled. But I can understand why people would take a step towards God when they're being shelled. Can we move towards faith and trust in God? What do you think Jacob's going to do? Remember, he already believes that Joseph is dead. And he feels uh, strongly that this proposed journey for Benjamin is an unwise idea. And so based on that, he's only willing to send the other 10 to Egypt. And um, the thing is, we know that that in spite of what Jacob is feeling here, that God knows how he's going to respond. And so he, uh, he sends the 10 boys off. And unknowingly, they encounter their brother, Joseph, prime minister of Egypt now. They don't recognize him. There's a lot of reasons. The way they dressed, the Egyptians weren't known for their facial hair. Israelites were. Um, he's wearing adornments as, of his office as the prime minister. He's speaking in the Egyptian language, not in their language. So he looks a lot different. Plus, he was like a preteen when they last threw him into a hole, and they were mostly grown men with most of their adult features. So he recognizes them. They haven't got a clue who he is. And he puts on that he refuses to believe who they say they are and that why they've come. He accuses them of coming to undermine Egypt and look for weaknesses in their security. And they're saying, no, we just came to buy food. And he feigns that he doesn't believe them. They can't convince him otherwise. And so Joseph does this. He says, listen, I will permit you to return to your land with the grain, but one of you will remain here until you bring your other brother that they had told him about out of their fear, Benjamin, back to me. And when you bring him back, then I'll let you all go. So Simeon is chosen, second oldest, Reuben, Simeon. He's chosen to remain with, uh, in, in Egypt with Joseph. Within earshot of, of Joseph, the brothers now speaking to themselves in their own language, they all start talking to each other about how this is, this is because of what we did to Joseph all those years ago. God is mad at us and he is punishing us and this is happening because of what we have done. Joseph understands their, their, their language perfectly well. Remember, he's pretending that he can't speak their language. He's so moved by what they're saying that he has to leave the room to go cry. He leaves for a few minutes, he comes back recomposed, and then he tells his servants, pack the silver back in their bags, fill the bags with grain, and send them on their way. And so they head out. They leave, and along the road, this is discovered, that the silver is back in the bags. I guess they weren't very good judges of weight, either that or it was really cheap light silver, I don't know. But they suddenly find the silver in the bags, and in verse 28, it says they cry out, what is this that God has done to us? See, immediately, they don't see the blessing here. They don't see the potential that, wow, he was merciful to us. They go, ooh, we're in deeper trouble. And they immediately start to think of what this is going to look like to other people. And because their consciences are already troubling them from what they had done to their brother Joseph all, year, all those years ago, and because of the situation that Simeon is now in as a prisoner back in Egypt, 
they don't know what to do. They get back to their father. The plot thickens a little here because they get back to their dad. They relay the story to him and he sees exactly the perception issue and he's afraid that other people are gonna see that they probably stole the grain from the Egyptians and kept the silver and took off or worse yet, that they sold Simeon for the silver back. It's not good. At this point, you would almost expect a father to shout out, God, can it get any worse? Kind of like Job did at one point. But, but not only does he not cry out, he doesn't even talk to God about it. He just wallows in self-pity. And in spite of this lack of trust and this doom and gloom, God still has his hands very much on Jacob and his family and their situation, even though they don't see it. And that brings us to the next point. Here's the thing. With all of this going on, and all of this fear and anxiety and worst case scenario playing out right in front of his eyes, the truth is that trusting God takes resolve. You have to decide to trust God because your heart is not going to urge you forward. Your heart is going to urge you in full-blown, giddy-up retreat. And I say it that way because when circumstances are seemingly impossible and when, when our predisposed heart toward fear begins to act against us, placing our trust in God and then leaving it with him seems foreign. Reuben, the oldest son, he steps in here and he tries to bring some measure of control back to the family in the situation. And he says the dumbest thing that a son ever said to his father with one child dead, another child in captivity, and a third one requested in Egypt. He says, kill my two sons if I don't bring him, Benjamin, back to you. How many times have you read that and just kind of read it? I read it the other day and I went, wait, what? He said, what? Kill my two sons if I don't bring your son, Benjamin, back to you from the prime minister in Egypt. Dumb, not exactly instilling trust. Like if I'm his dad, I'm going, hey, wait a minute, time out. So you care so little about your two boys that you're telling me I can kill them if you don't bring mine back to me. Yeah, I feel really safe trusting my son with you, father, killer of your children. And somehow, to Reuben, this makes perfect sense. Like, that's the perfectly logical place to go. I can't leverage it any other way, so kill my kids. Destroy the most important thing to me. And so as this chapter ends, we see this intense desperation where stupidity is now run amok. And then as chapter 43 begins, we see how things actually get worse. And you have to be careful how you read this here. Because my translation, the ESV, it says this. Now the famine was severe in the land. It's not now. The famine was severe in the land. It's not some fairy tale narrator saying this to you. Like, attention, the famine was, it's now. So all of this stuff before, the famine was bad. The situation was bad. But now the famine is severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, which presumably the last of it, their father said to them, go return, go again and buy us a little food. Judah, another son, the fourth son, if you're counting, Judah steps in because Judah believes something here. Judah understands that Benjamin is the linchpin in the solution with the Egyptian prime minister. He gets that the solution will not resolve favorably for them without Benjamin. And he says this to his father. The man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go. 
he digs his heels in. He doesn't say, Dad, I don't think it's a good idea. Dad, I would urge you to reconsider. Hey, Pop, I know you love your son. He says, we're not going anywhere. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face. You won't, I won't even answer the door unless your brother is with you. And while it's not explicitly stated here, I think there's a couple of things that are now working in his favor, in Judah's favor. Number one, the famine is now severe. If it wasn't bad enough before. See, there's a difference between a drought and a famine. A drought, a drought is what California has. Not enough water, food goes down. A famine, you can't grow food. You can't grow dust. So the famine is severe, meaning that they, they still can't grow anything, therefore they can't eat. And number two, Judah has become resolved. He's dug his heels in. He's not moving. We will not go. And he boldly asserts this to his father. And because he knows that the situation is desperate, Jacob, and because he believes that this is the only way out, Judah is able to coerce his father into capitulating, into giving up, into saying, okay, take Benjamin. It's not that his, his faith has suddenly grown and reemerged. Not at all. I think Judah knew that God was going to have to work if they were going to be successful. I think he knew that. Because he, two things he did know for certain. He knew that they had absolutely no control over the rain. And he knew that they had absolutely no control over the Egyptian prime minister. And the third thing he knew is, that's where our brother is. And this is the guy he says is the way out, Benjamin. But Jacob's change of mind here is not a renewed faith. More likely, he's been moved by his sheer desperation. And he's resigned himself to the second worst possible case scenario here. See, the potential is that he will now lose Benjamin as well. But we won't die. That would be worst case scenario. If, so I think what he's doing here is he's going, okay, if it's going to in fact take Benjamin for us to eat, okay. Listen to it in verse 11, chapter 43. Then their father Israel, which is the name God had given him in in Genesis chapter 32, and ironically, Israel means God prevails. This guy's walking around, Jacob, and his name is God prevails, and he's doubting God, and he's walking in fear. God prevails. What does your driver's license say, Jacob? God wins. God prevails. But he doesn't get that. He misses it. Anyway, Jacob said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Not just take money. Take all of the best of what we have. We got nothing, but take the best of everything. Double the money. This doesn't sound like faith. This sounds like bribery because it is. And see, bribery comes out of fear too. I have to leverage influence because I don't have it any other way. He says, take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. And then he says this, and this is encouraging. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, Joseph, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin, if only he had stopped there. Because finally he's turned back to God. He said, may God grant you mercy. If he would just stop there, but he can't help himself. 
the next verse, and as for me, like we need violin music playing here. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, if I'm to lose my children, then I'm bereaved. His nature is to sing woe is me when he can't do anything else. On April 9th, 1918, near Flanders in France, close to the Belgian border in northwestern France, a desperate offensive that would later be named the Battle of the Lees began when the Germans attacked and decimated a Portuguese division of roughly 12,000 men. The Portuguese were under the command of the British Expeditionary Force. The assault left an 11-kilometer hole in the British line. Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig, this guy, was the commander-in-chief of all British forces in Western Europe. The assault seriously alarmed Haig because even though his troops were fiercely resisting the onslaught of the Germans, he knew that even a small territorial gain by the Kaiser's men um, would, would render the ports, the French ports of the English Channel, highly vulnerable. That's important because the ports were fundamental to the complex system of resupply and therefore the army, army's ability to make war because that's where the men and the troops and the goods and the ammunition came from England to these French ports. Worse, if the Germans weren't contained, stopped, and pushed back across the River Lees, then something that they called seaborne evacuation might become a necessity. And it might be the only way that Haig's army would survive. The problem is it didn't exist in 1918. Ironically, one of the ports in play here is a town called Dunkirk, which 22 years later in World War II is the exact place where the Germans would push the British out of Western Europe. The exact place. And when it happened in 1940, it happened with relatively low casualty rates for the Allies based on what they were facing. But in 1918, the technology to evacuate by sea didn't exist. And so these guys, including troops of the Royal Newfoundland Regiment from Canada, are facing very likely destruction. Haig knows this. He knows that if the Germans succeed at the Lees, that a bigger setback and possibly the slaughter of his men and their, the expulsion of all British forces in Western Europe is going to happen, and soon. Here's the thing. He's the guy. And he's fully aware of how fragile the situation is. And because he's connected to all of the information and the lesser generals and all of the stuff coming in and the intelligence, he has a three-dimensional understanding of exactly how dangerous their situation is. And on April 11th, two days into the offensive, he issues an order of the day. Orders of the day were not uncommon in those days from the commander-in-chief, not always the commander-in-chief of the entire army, usually from unit commanders, but he issues an order of the day and he commanded his army, this one's special, he commanded his army to resist the Germans by holding, quote, every position to the very last man. Don't back up. Not a step. There's no such thing as a strategic retreat and a counteroffensive. If, if you back up, it's because you were pushed back or you were killed. You do not heed ground to the enemy. He believed that losing any ground would spell defeat. And so this becomes known as his backs to the wall order. There's nowhere to go but forward or dead. Haig was not always popular. He was vilified early in the war because of some strategic, say that, strategic mistakes. And some of his men hated him. But in this moment, they trusted him. 
The orders conveyed all across the front line. The initial reactions are a little bit of everything. Um, some men were caught totally unaware and, uh, of how precarious the situation was for the British military. Some were quite alarmed. Regional mutinies actually became a little bit of a potential issue. Most though, most men, most officers, their hearts were stirred. Their loyalty to empire and the king stiffened and their willingness to do whatever it took for victory overrode their fear. Whatever each man took away from the order, the day that it came down marked the most dangerous day in the war for the British military so far. And it became the most famous rallying cry that Haig ever wrote and issued. And so what happens is, over the coming days, small units of men band together faithfully. Wider collaboration begins to grow until hundreds of thousands of men are unified behind their field marshal, convinced that they can win. Slowly, the momentum begins to shift. And as the offensives and counteroffensives play out over the next few weeks, Narrowly, by a very razor-thin margin, they're able to hold it together. They push the Germans back. The line is reestablished. Six months later, Germany surrenders unconditionally, in no small part because the battle at the Lees and the spring offensive of 1918 was successful. When everything seemed impossible, they put their total faith climbing out of trenches into gunfire and bombardment and the possibility of obliteration. They put their trust in one man and his plan. And the man that we serve is greater than any general. He's more powerful, more knowing, more competent than any man. 198,000 casualties were suffered by the British, but they won. Haig challenged his men and they answered resoundingly. What about you? What are you facing today that's challenging, maybe painful? If your situation is great this morning, sincerely, I'm happy for you and you should praise God with a joyful heart. But if your situation is painful or somebody you know and love is facing adversity that they just can't seem to bear, you should praise him more and you should press into him more. Because my belief is that we can all recognize some of Jacob's behaviors and his tendencies in ourselves, in our reactions, whether present or past. We've all got elements of unbelief and, and broken trust, not because God has moved. And if we apply any other label to this, we're just kidding ourselves. If we, you know, it, it, when we're waiting for Brett if I apply any other label and say, well, you can understand. I mean, this is like my wife and my baby. Yeah, that's true. But who do I trust? And do I still trust him if it doesn't go the direction I want it to go? Do I still trust God if he dies? I think when we've looked at Jacob here, we see an ugly, wart-covered, unbelieving side of him. And... Uh, and I think we have to reflect on it and, and see how that applies to us. And if, whether you're only marginally prone towards defeatism or whether it's the first place that fear takes you and it incapacitates you, know this, know this. It's not what God wants for you. 
It's not how he wants your walk with Christ to be characterized. You know, fear not is in the scriptures frequently. Don't be incapacitated by your fear. And so, so what is our response? I think it comes down to this. I think simply stated, whenever we face unexpected situations, difficulties, and even things that are seemingly impossible, I think that we can't let our horizontal viewpoint cause us to panic. See, Haig knew what it took to win because he had the overarching view of everything. But I'm only aware of my situation from inside my life. And that's where I need people to tell me the truths of God and the bigger situation and the trials they've been through and how they've seen God deliver them from far greater things, worse things. We need a different view. Because our tendency towards fear and negative thinking will erode our trust in God if that's what we're listening to. The pastor that married Kim and I uh, said this one time, I paraphrased, and I was trying to remember exactly how he said it. That's a long time ago. He said this, and I referenced it earlier. If my faith and my trust in God is ever shaken, it's not God that moved. It's me. If my faith and trust in God is shaken, I am the one who has moved. God remains for us. He remains for you. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. Even when we don't see it. I'm going to invite the praise team to come, but as I do, I'm going to read this scripture to you from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 to 11. It says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion or the glory forever and ever. In your trials and your suffering, trust God. He's for you.